Gabe Gums has a deep-rooted passion for technology and information security, and his goal is to share that passion to push data security to the forefront of every business's agenda. Security is all I've ever done. It's what I know. It's what I love. I enjoy every aspect of it, from building it to talking about it to marketing it to selling it. You name it to breaking it. All of the things. It's a passion. Gabe is the chief innovation officer at Spirian. A leader in rapid identification and protection of sensitive data, and these days he's channeling that passion to make the digital world a safer place. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Gabe explains his vision for data privacy and why it's time to kick siloed data to the curb. He also provides a detailed view on the future of work and why the talent shortage that security professionals have discussed may not be exactly as drastic as it seems. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at Salesforce.com/platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. We have the Chief Innovation Officer at Spirian, Gabe Gums. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to get right into it because I actually had the title of Chief Innovation Officer at one point at a startup, and it wasn't what people thought it was. What exactly is your role at Spirian? That's a good point. It never is what anyone thinks it is, isn't it? No. Not one of those titles that I guess has been around for 30 years, and it's equally one of those titles, depending on the organization and its needs, might be different. It can be everything from head of R&D to, uh, to, in my case, head of product strategy, technical alliance partnerships, and things of that nature. So a large part of what I do involves understanding my customers, their problems, the market. How are we going to build solutions to solve for those problems for those customers, exploring those things? There's a lot of very forward-facing, as one might imagine, innovation. Uh, kind of tip of the spare activity. So ideating new products, prototyping, you name it. And then the, the things that are kind of out there today, solving problems, understanding the changing landscape of those problems in our customers, and ensuring that Spirit continues to build the products necessary to meet those challenges. Awesome, man. It looks like you have a background in product management, so it makes sense that you're a product-centric person. Curiously, um, before we actually get too far into it, tell our audience what Spirian is, so that way uh, they can understand a little bit what it is you are currently building, and we'll dive into that. Yeah, that's a good question also. So Spirian's a data security company. We've been around for, I don't know, about a decade and a half plus, right? So 15, 16 years, give or take. I can't recall the exact number. We are a data security organization. So we build a platform that helps organizations manage their overall data lifecycle protection from the time data is created to being handled, shared, retained, destroyed. We build solutions to find it anywhere it's at, identify it for what it is, the sensitive nature of it, protect it, remediate it, and monitor it. This is where I want to go into because this will help our audience understand your product strategy as well as your expertise and knowledge. Because data protection is a huge oceanic-sized, let's say, area or domain. Yeah. Uh, what part of data security does, does experience specifically play in as well as your role, because, you know, we hear about like whether it's security through on the network side, it could be in the database side, it can be in the cloud services side. Uh, It's all different places. 
hopefully you can explain for our audience like where exactly the Spirian planet, because that's the one thing I've learned on this show is every time someone says security and data security, they mean something else than, than that term <laughs> or they, they, they mean a narrower gap of that term. Fair. I mean data, literally just data though. Yeah. Right? So we don't operate at uh, layer four. We don't operate at the network level. We operate on data. And so when I say data security, I'm talking about data that exists in structured and unstructured environments. So data that resides on endpoints and file servers, NAS devices, cloud storage repositories, emails, structured environments like databases and so forth. So I'm talking about actual data when I'm talking about data security. There you go. <laughs> yeah, very tangible data with a capital D. How's that? Okay, sounds good. And then what are you currently working on the most? Uh, spending most of your time, energy, how to protect this data? Because we know that data security, data privacy is becoming, you know, everyone knows data is gold, right? It is also, and because of that, of that, it also sees the most amount of bad actors trying to get it, right? So it's a never yeah. ending battle. People yeah. want it, people trying to protect it, people trying to own it. So give us an idea of how you logically look at this problem, how you're approaching, experience uh, approaching a solution for this. So in particular with this problem in the last year, you know, thanks to the plague has, uh, has really forced us to take a harder look at the way we think about these problems. And one of the things that customers have been forced to do over the last year is kind of work with less if you would, or work with the same amount, but now they have more challenges. They have users in more diverse environments. They're back at home. Some of them are in hybrid work scenarios. There was a, a pretty quick push to get those users uh, acclimated to the new environments from a technology perspective, which from a data perspective also means we push the boundaries of those data outwards from where our, our natural and some of the original controls were. And so one of the places where I'm spending most of my energy right now is getting, getting folks to understand those silos of data and protection. Um, and when I talk about silos, it's exactly what we touched on just a second ago, right? So you have data in databases, you have it in the cloud, you have the endpoints, et cetera. And being able to look at and manage the risks surrounding all the data in all those diverse environments really means how do I make sure that my vision for what we build and what we execute on isn't just yet another single pane of glass, but is actually a one source of truth. I don't really like the single pane of glass because, well, how would you feel if your car had one pane of glass? That, <laughs> that sounds like a really bad vehicle to drive. You need to be able to look around you, right? And, and to be able to understand what's happening around you. And I think about our platform in very much the same way, not as a single pane of glass, but as a solution that allows you to look around your environments, plural, and whether they, uh, whether they are cloud agnostic or not, whether you're all in Azure, all in AWS, which I don't know if I know anyone who really is, um, whether you're all on-prem, you've got, you've got endpoints, et cetera, and getting that single view across it all. So that's a lot of where I've been spending my time. I'm spending a, a lot of time also with the new platform that we rolled out over the last year. So it has a significant uh, automation orchestration component to it. In fact, it's a playbook, right? It's a, it, it's a playbook that allows that allows you to manage all of those outcomes across those different environments. And so really helping our customers pull all that stuff together. There wasn't certainly enough resources before this last year going into these types of challenges, and it didn't get any easier. 2020 was a census year, so we've got a lot of customers in either the higher ed space and or in the, the public arena that had a lot of data sharing needs. Um, it was a pandemic year, which means there was also a lot of other data sharing <laughs> needs. Yep. 
yeah and and so it's been a it's been a lot of of getting out in front of that how are we looking around the entire environment how are we making sure that we're able to to not just then find and see all those things but how do we how do we act on them how do we remediate that right yeah and let's dive into that a little bit because one of the things that you that the company talks about on its website is it talks about sensitive data privacy data and we also know that there is a currently a rise of course in international law domestic law a state law that wants to put more onus on business operators who have this data to protect it. In fact, the legal ramifications are getting quite high. I saw a judgment just got levied against Facebook. That was just an astronomical number. Uh, <laughs> I want to pull that up while you, while, you, while you answer this. I'm curious, is that where your focus is? And is that, you know, where do you see the market going, I guess? Because Every tool operates on this. Every you know, every company needs it, and then yet it's also the most coveted. We kind of talked about that just lightly. Where do you see the market going on this, and how do you see this playing out over the next you know five years? You know, I, I don't think data is ever going to be fully secured. I just don't believe it because there's always going to be an actor trying to get around it, right? Whatever you security you build, someone says, "Hey, can I get around that?" Yeah. So your bite, your battle is going to be endless. Yeah. But what does it look like in the next five years? Because you got more policy, more laws playing a role in this. Uh, more companies that want to protect it, and of course, more actors that want to take it. Yeah, the market, which is just a proxy for what the business world actually needs, the outcomes of value that they desire, is heading towards no longer being able to do nothing. Yeah, you stated a second ago that uh, you know this kind of solutioning is the kind of thing everyone needs, right? Like, obviously, everyone needs this. Like, it's it's clear everyone needs to know where all that sensitive data is. Uh, like you. How are you protecting it otherwise? For all of the controls you put in place, how do you know you're actually protecting sensitive data if you don't know where it's at, know what it is, and are monitoring, right? Um, but there certainly was some non-zero number, some fairly calculable percentage of organizations that chose to do nothing in this specific realm. And when I say nothing, that's not a knock on them, like they sat on their hands, did nothing. They did a lot of things, but they didn't do anything that addressed the sensitive data at that level, right? Like understanding it, knowing it, tracking it. Because to your point, we're not going to certainly secure every single bit of it from attack. But that doesn't mean we can't protect it from the outcomes associated with those attacks. Right? We can reduce the breach exposure. We can certainly make sure that it's not environments where, where we know that it has a greater likelihood of being exposed to, to those threat actors. And so the place I see the market moving is not being able to do anything for all the reasons you mentioned. There's a lot of regulation on the rise. Um, a lot of state regulation. Virginia is the latest one that's making all, all of the headlines, right? They hear stateside. Brazil's still coming online and you name it, every single country, South Africa, you name it, everywhere that I can turn my head to in the, the, the largely developed and even somewhat developed world, those things are coming online. And so doing nothing is no longer an option. And that's the direction the market is most certainly moving towards is nothing is not an option. So what is this something we do? Let me ask you a question. Was doing nothing actually a viable defense that customers and prospects would say to you? Like, uh, let's just say five years ago, well, well we're, we're already secure. We already got what we got and it's, it's good enough. Doing nothing is why that, whatever the number was, you were going to quote me on that Facebook uh... guy. I just read the article on December 11th, 2020 came out that they, they were reserving 366 million for their expected GDPR fine in Ireland alone. <laughs> now, this is just them just earmarking some cash. They're like, yeah, we're going to have to pay this. And so what did Facebook do? Some 70 billion in profits? Yeah. 
right? Profit, not revenue, but profit. So I, I'm not even going to do the back of the napkin math, but that's why doing nothing was an option. Right. And I think a lot of people look at that and think, well, all right, so they were, they've already earmarked some money for it. And we're not Facebook, so we probably won't get hit with a fine that big, but we're also not Facebook. So people aren't targeting us, obviously, right? And we're also not Facebook, so we don't have to do all the things they do. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was a lot of the, yeah, but we're not them. Yeah, but we're not them. But you are them. Facebook customers are your customers. Facebook's products are your customers. It's probably a more accurate way of putting it. Their product being the, the, the people on their platform. Right. But they're your customers. So you are them. You are very much them. That's right. And Facebook can afford to pay that fine. You can't. You are not Facebook. You're absolutely right. That's the area where you do differ is in your ability to, to, to pick, up, pick up the pieces from those, those lost occurrences. But you are them in so much that you have the same data. You have the same type of sensitive data. You have data that belongs to me, to you, to our families, our friends, our colleagues. You have that same data. And so that's, that's definitely worth noting where you are different and where you're not from organizations like that. So where are you doing to help companies protect this? Because are you adding some level of encryption? Are you level you creating some type of offline storage? Like how does it work? Because, you know, one of the things you mentioned is you protect all forms of, I would call, you know, you could call the data with a capital D, right? Actual files, actual records in database, in cloud database, yep. in actual files, right? In storage, cold storage, wherever it may be, as it's you know, you want to help protect it. What is your methodology or how, what's your you know, hypothesis methodology for protecting that? I mentioned earlier also that silos are, are kind of where your data lives. And silos are very much the bane of security's very existence. Right. And you've got to be able to integrate those silos to provide enterprise-wide privacy and security. And so our approach to this problem isn't attempting to be a hammer and look at the world as one big nail. We don't natively encrypt any information. However we do integrate tightly and improperly with a number of encryption solutions, right? And we also automate and orchestrate that behavior through playbooks so that there's, there's not additional steps you need to do there. We do, however, have a number of native remediation capabilities because we genuinely know, not just believe, but we know that, again, you have to be able to meet data where it's at. So if you have sensitive information that needs to be, let's say, shared with a third party, but you need to be able to ensure that you're protecting the privacy of your customers, then you're going to need a remedi- then your, your remediation for that data is going to have to re- involve some kind of de-identification. And so we offer that through technology alliance partnerships. In other cases, you're going to have sensitive data that you only want it to live on HR endpoints. Well, we can natively enforce policies where internal employee PII is not allowed to live outside of those environments. If we see it, then we will ensure that we either destroy it or move it back to where it belongs. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's a very holistic approach to remediation where we offer a number of native capabilities ourselves, and then we integrate closely with, with folks like Microsoft and their AIP, MIP technology to, to make sure that we are working with data where it's at and, and securing it where it's at as well. So tell us a little about your background, because I believe you were the first technical operator uh, that we've had from the born and raised in the Caribbean. Hey. Uh, <laughs> so welcome to the show. Yeah, this is awesome. Talk about like, you know, one of the things I always ask, we ask our guests is like, bring me back. How did you fall in love with technology? I definitely fell in love with technology, even as an early kid. A lot of that was a bit more physical in nature. A, a lot of a lot of mechanics and, and electronics at a young age. Uh, when I was start dating myself, you know, when I was a kid, depending where you draw the line, a kid because still a still a big old man baby. Some days, uh, <laughs> I'm there with you, man. The internet 
was either in its nascency or not there. Again, depending on where you draw that line. So by the time I entered high school, um, you know, I was getting online. I was coming online, had my my first 36k modem. You know, the internet was was nowhere near what it is today, but there, but it was a very exciting and rich environment to learn from. You had your your classic Usenet environments and so forth, but I also had left the Caribbean right around that time and moved to New York, which had an amazingly incredible, rich technology and security scene from, you know, my local, the, the NY Linux user group and, uh, and the Alt 2600 meetups and you name it. We, I was fortunate enough to have all of those things at my fingertips, if you would, as a kid. And so that, that curiosity was just there kind of naturally from the start of things that were around me. And in progression through my education, it, it started being introduced to me more. Uh, you know, I, I took uh, an intro to programming class in high school or back when. I don't, I don't even know if most schools were really offering it then or not. So I, I definitely have to credit a lot of, of nature and nurture to how I got here. And then it's just been a, a winding path of some amazing folks that I've worked with throughout the years. Uh, the pleasure to have led some incredible teams and to have worked for some very intelligent people. So based on you describing when you got your modem, I feel like we're probably pretty close in age. I'm just going to go ahead and age myself, but you might be a little younger than me. Uh, I'm 41. You want me to do high or low? Is that what we're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I am as well. Yeah. <laughs> See, because you said back, I remember when the internet was first coming online and people got, remember you got those discs that had minutes on it? Yeah, like net yeah. zero would send you a oh, disc. Yeah. Like, oh, I got some minutes, yeah. right? And you would try to get online. You hit the dial up. But I remember at the time, you know, I remember being a kid and my dad was trying to explain to me how computers were the future. And I remember looking at computers like they don't do anything. That's my like my and my dad was obviously right. I was obviously wrong. And I remember being a kid and like, man, I don't see why it's slow. Like I'm literally playing Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson on a floppy disk. And it's like yeah. stick figures moving around like this isn't really in- interesting at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I'm curious, you know, you were you were obviously gravitating towards that. And at that time, if we if we put that generation on us, I'm telling you right now in my neighborhood, coding or anything with computers was not considered cool. Like you definitely got made fun of for doing it. I'm curious, you know, not, it's not like today where people, kids are revered almost in my opinion, like, cause I see my kids in school, they're like, Oh, you, you know how to code, you know how to do apps. Like there's code schools everywhere now. Curious for me, like what was the reaction? Because you come from a different place, uh, you know, Caribbean vibe, you know, the stereotype of the Caribbean vibe is that everyone's leisurely. You know what I mean? Like that, I'm not saying that's right, but there's a stereotypical vibe that people are more leisurely. Talk about like, how did people react when you first showed this interest and affinity towards programming? Well, on the home front, that obviously went over well. I mean, that's, that's why they, they being my parents, you know, they, they bought me a computer. Again, I'm super lucky and fortunate. That's awesome. Yeah. In the neighborhood though, no, you'd be right. There was no such thing happening there, but there was maybe one other person in the neighborhood who had a similar affinity to technology. But again, Luckily enough, my neighborhood wasn't just a block in New York that I lived in. It was all of New York. So, you know, yeah. I had access to a lot of people with similar interests. So, you know, if the boys in, in the hood didn't feel the same way, it didn't really matter because there were, there were other hoods with, with, with other boys, right? But I had a similar experience as you, you know, my first interaction with computers like, does it do anything that <laughs> I want it to do? And so I started figuring out how to get it to do the things I wanted it to do. That's, that's what really led to that was, yeah, I don't, I don't like what it's currently doing, and I need it to do something else. So why don't I figure out how to make it go do something else? That was a large part of that experience. And then 
for most of your career, your entire career, it looks like you've been in some type of security type alignment. Where, how did you get into the security side of the, you know, the technical discipline? Yeah, I started my professional career networking, actually. That was probably older than I think my LinkedIn even uh, keeps track of. <laughs> and from my early networking days, I had I'd continued in my private life, if you would, my non-professional life, um, to have been very interested in, in security on a number of different levels. And so it was just a matter of, of trying to find that, that first opportunity to, uh, to really take that into my professional life. And I was lucky enough to, to have an early mentor who ended up hiring me onto a security team that, that allowed me to do that. And I think one of the things that I learned as well, too, to kind of answer your, your previous question, you know, that Caribbean nature in terms of being leisurely, you know, what is, what is efficiency if not uh, the perseverance of laziness, right? Um, <laughs> and so, yes, we, we, are, we are by nature a, a leisurely people, but also a very efficient uh, culture, an extremely efficient culture. And, and so, again, back to the computer side of things, that meant trying to automate as much of my early professional life as I could, um, including some of the security aspects of it. And, and that curiosity continued to build upon itself. And, and that, that love of being able to make things simpler and automate them and make them more efficient, uh, I think was equally it just kind of part of my DNA as well. You know, I got to ask then. So one of the things, you know, in security is did you, did you at any point were you a hacker? I mean, a hacker in the sense of the word of like, were you trying to break into places to see if you could? I don't know anyone in in those circles at the time that that wasn't engaging in some similar type of activity. And I don't mean in an illegal sense, like, right. But we all huddled around the lobby of, of uh, Citibank building. We were hackers by definition. Yeah. In spirits, by in, in any, any way you want to define the word then or now, we, we certainly were those things. But I think we would all prefer to have that definition be levied upon us as, as ones who saw the system for what it was and wanted it to do what we wanted it to do. Right. No, I love that. Cause I, I used to, I joked with my, I joke with my kids all the time and says, because I was inherently not wanting to work, I didn't call it laziness. I said, because I didn't want to work, but I could work hard. I figured out ways to do things more efficiently. So I had more time. That's the way I describe it to my kids. They look at me with glossed over eyes. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you, can, you can quote me on this next time. You tell me that. It's the perseverance of laziness. Laziness is not inherently bad. Yeah. Not allowing it to persevere is right. Like laziness in short bursts. That's bad. A career <laughs> of laziness. Well, that's just call a pot being a Python programmer, right? Like, <laughs> that's <what> <laughs> And throughout your career, you know, you've held high, high positions, at different organizations for your ability to protect and secure data. What was a moment in your career where you identified where you said, wow, I'm actually really, really good at this? I don't know if I still quite say that, but, you know, it's, it's hard to keep the imposter monster off your shoulder some days. But uh, I think it was very early in my career, I actually forget any of the positions. It was very early in my career when, when someone gave me an opportunity to do this professionally and like, they, they were going to cut me an actual check to do this thing. I was like, all right, I guess, I guess I am pretty good at this thing. Am I really, really, really good at this? There's some things that I do know I'm certainly extremely good at, really good at. The reason I'm good at them, though, I think is what's worth paying attention to more than whether or not I'm actually good at it. It's a passion. It's, it's the kind of passion that doesn't allow me to uh, think about anything else when I'm focused and zoned in on that. It's the kind of passion 
that has served me well over the last 20 years in so much that security is all I've ever done. It's, it's what I know. It's what I love. I enjoy every aspect of it from building it to talking about it, to marketing it, to selling it, to you, you name it, to breaking it, to, to all of the things. It's a passion. That's the thing that makes me particularly good at what I happen to do. And then, you know, obviously when you were at the, in the product role, at Spirian, you had a lot of direct reports. Do you have a lot of direct reports currently at, as the chief innovation officer? Well, I have every single one of my customers holding me accountable for. <laughs> you better have that passion. <laughs> for a direct report, but yeah, so yeah, we've got a team of researchers as well too that uh, report directly to myself. So these are security researchers, market researchers uh, as well too, uh, and then we we have entire separate arms of of the development teams that go off and actually, you know, do the building, if you would. So for these research teams, what are some of the qualities you look for to help build that team up? I mean, I can already tell that that passion's got to be there. So that's going to be some type of natural curiosity that they just have to have. Like, hey, you need to go find me answers to solutions that don't exist. Yeah. Right. Or answers to problems that don't exist yet. Right. Like that kind of mentality. Kind of give me an idea of how you build up that research vibe on your team to go find laziness and perseverance <laughs> we're back to laziness and perseverance i'm legit not even kidding though right because we're so much in the forefront of exploring things that that others haven't yet and trying to solve problems in different ways than others have it means that we hit a lot of dead ends we hit a lot of them mm-hmm. and we have to get out of those dead ends quickly and we have to persevere and keep going until we understand the problem further and and come to the right conclusions to formulate those solutions. So it's the qualities I genuinely look for are, for example, give me someone with a DevOps background and I can teach them security, right? Like that's not necessarily the skill set, but the point is that type of mindset is what I prefer to have in those roles. A little different than my product managers though, like those folks, the thing I need for, from them is, is an ability to live in problem space, be comfortable in the uncomfortable zone that is problem space. Jumping right to solution space uh, certainly too quickly is, that's usually something that I, I don't hold as high in regards. Yeah. So that can sometimes feel like a, um, you know, maybe like a fruitless or, you know, when, if, you're in a, if you're in an environment where, you know, I think people will always want to raise their hand and tell you they know the answer, right? You just kind of hit at it. You just said jumping to a solution that isn't quite well thought out. You're not, you, that's, you get no rewards from Gabe Gums on that, right? But most people want to affirm themselves that, hey, I have figured something out. Yeah. And so, so how do you go about, you know, building that culture, that cultivation where you, you know, it sounds like you're really, really encouraging people to come at problems with like just thorough, thorough analysis. Like you got to tell me everything there is to know about this problem before I even want to consider a solution. Yeah. Tell me you've learned more about the problem. Tell me you've figured out something more about the problem. And my ears put perk up, my eyes perk up, right? Like I lean forward in my seat. Tell me you've found the solution. And I'm interested, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more skeptical and cautious, right? Like I, that, now I want to hear more. I certainly want to understand how we got there. If all we're, we're doing is throwing up solutions first. How do you cultivate that? You cultivate curiosity. You reward the curiosity. And sometimes you, you, you equally reward I don't want to use the word failure, but for lack of a better word, again, we hit, we hit some of those dead ends, but tell me that you learned something in that dead end. Mm-hmm. We reward those things like, ah, we didn't solve it, but we learned something else about this problem that's going to help us solve it even better now. So those are the things you, you, you reward and, and that you, uh, you hold up. And so how do you go about evaluating solutions then? Because 
that's one of the biggest challenges I would say anyone with a innovation officer title, director of product, they commonly hear, let's say, about a lot of opportunities, right? Your own team will say like, hey, we could do A through Z. Your customers, as you already suggested, they all have suggestions, right? <laughs> they, they all think that they have the best answer to whatever the problem is. And so you're sitting there and you're evaluating all things. How do you go about making decisions on what to invest time and energy in next? Does it solve the types of problems that as a company we are good at solving? Does it solve the kinds of problems that customers come to me for? And will those customers pay money for it? Because everyone always the Yeah, everyone does a lot of people have a lot of great, great answers and great, great, great solutions, including customers. But customers have problems that are sometimes unique to their world and not not wholly applicable to to all of my customers. And so I have to rise above that and look at look at that problem across the customers. And I'm going to use the word easy. You know, I'm really taking liberty with the word easy, but the metrics easy, right? Did did it solve the problems for those customers in a way that uh, that no one else can for them? And are they willing? Do they see enough value in that solution to exchange, you know, all of our time and work and effort for money? If it if it meets those two things, then then we're in the we're in the right ballpark. We're on to the right solution. So they say a lot of times in leadership, especially product leadership, it's about actually saying no. It's not saying yes. It's saying no to things. Can you say no to things? Because that helps you hyper-focus, laser in on better solutions, better builds, whatever, better everything, right? What is your strategy for telling a customer, not today? <laughs> when, when you know, they push a solution like, hey, we really want this. This thing could make Spirian work great. It's going to work great for us. But you know, it doesn't hit enough of your criteria. You've, you've evaluated, it doesn't hit enough of your criteria. You got to now tell them no, but. Yeah. If you went to an ear, nose, and throat specialist and that doctor told you, you know, I, uh, no, you want me to, to look at your lungs or something? No, I just, I don't do that. Leave my office now. Like you'd probably be unsatisfied, but you might help them find the right doctor to go solve for their problems, right? You might, you might even in fact have a network of other doctors that you refer patients out to regularly. I like that. And so no for me is usually more of a, I have an ecosystem partner that is going to be able to help you solve for that challenge because it's not the kind of thing we do. Or if it's the kind of thing we do, but the, but maybe doesn't necessarily fit in you know, with what it is we're doing today, then I might tell them, no, not today, right? Uh, but maybe tomorrow and, and we'll continue to look at that. Ultimately, if someone came to you with a problem, though, the thing that they want is they want a solution and, and no is not a solution. No is another problem, in fact. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we always think about when we talk with leaders such as yourself, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about the culture, talked a little bit about how you handle customers and customer requests. Talk to me about how you envision, you know, this is one of the things where we always love hearing your, hearing your opinions on is how do you envision the future the next five years, you know, we kind of talked about the marketplace, right? Where everyone's no is no longer an answer. But this is one of those places where recruiting is going to increase. The demands for security just going to continue to increase along with all the other technical jobs. But like, I feel like demands for security are going to increase. Have you thought about or have you given thought about how Spearing, you're going to continue to grow your team? How do you attract, retain talent? From your perspective in general, are there enough people that are in this field? Or do you feel like uh, people are leaning more towards, you know, I always joke around like 
there's more kids probably interested in making filters for TikTok than there are for people that want to, you know, do brain surgery. Like it feels like, <laughs> you know, I hope so. I mean, I, I genuinely hope so. Though. Like I don't want to, I don't want a bunch of kids thinking about brain surgery. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like security is one, one of the aspects where it's one of those things where I don't know do if you've seen a shift in workers and worker in like young uh, let's say college graduate or people going to college to be educated in this discipline. Do you see, how do you see secure the security workforce changing over the next, you know, five years? We know it's going to get bigger, but who's going to be doing it? My genuine hope on the who is that it is a much larger diversified field of who and not just people that have spent 20 years in information security like myself. We have to be able to attract talent from other disciplines and domains. They will reinvigorate this industry with some some new fresh thinking that I think we do lack. We do not have, in my opinion, a skills shortage or gap. We have a gap in what we are willing to accept as transferable skills. So I hope that we will get more folks coming out of law school that decide they want to practice data security at some level. Maybe not necessarily be technicians, but we require policymakers and, and, and other types of leaders as well too. It is my expectation that we will also see people, again, come from many other disciplines and domains. I originally endeavored on my college career as a mechanical engineer, for example. One of the members of my team also happens to be a mechanical engineer. He's got an amazing set of skills and talents that allows him to see these problems differently. So in the next several years, I, one of two things will happen. The organizations that, that recognize that their hiring practices are wholly myopic they will cease to be relevant. Security is no longer just about security. It never has been. But now all of those laws that you referenced, those are also privacy laws. In fact, they are privacy-led laws. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to operationalize all of that privacy as well, along with all the security. Who's going to do that? We are going to have to open up that thinking of of what is transferable and, and how is it applicable. That's going to take people thinking about it more visionary ways, more leaders thinking about how they can, they can use that talent in other ways. It will be an immediate identifier of organizations that are incapable of being innovative. You will be able to spot them a mile away. Do you have anecdotal experience of hiring or working with someone outside of your primary domain field that, you know, for example, brought together ideas that helped you cultivate a solution that ended up being, you know, a game-changing solution for your customers. It sounds like you have experience with this. Well, I referenced at least one individual uh, a second ago, right? Uh, yep. Mechanical engineer, robotics background, perfect kind of person to, to help us solve these problems. Why? Laziness and perseverance. Who better than a, robo- a robotics engineer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But in all seriousness, building modern technologies requires a lot more than just thinking about the security side. You have to understand technology as a whole. You have to understand the interplay of technology, the interplay of humans to their interfaces, which I think robotics is actually really, really, really adept at helping us understand those problems too. That's at least one real world example. I, I probably can think of several others depending on what the job is to be done. I've had some English majors that were absolutely incredible at being able to articulate the value of a security solution in ways that security professionals sometimes fail to be able to do themselves. They're really good about thinking about security problems, even solving for it, but communicating it is a different skill set as well, too. Yeah, that'd be wild if, you know, a kid, my kid came to me and said, hey, listen, I'm going to law school. And I said, oh, you're going to be a lawyer. And he said, no, no, no. 
I'm going to go into data security. Yeah. Because they need, but they need help with policy side. It's true. I mean, it makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. It is now a career path. It is a little early in its existence, early being relative. I mean, yeah. you know, we've got a member of our team, Scott Giordano, who has been practicing this type of, of uh, law, but he's, uh, you know, he's been doing this for, you know, over a decade. So these aren't new, but it's starting to gain a lot more traction. Getting a lot more traction. Well, Gabe, I appreciate you taking us through Spirian and your career, but now it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. And Gabe, this is where we ask you questions, quick answers about you outside of work so people can get to know you a little better. Yes. All right. So you grew up in St. Thomas and then you moved to New York as a young child. Is that accurate? Relatively, yes. Who's got the better food? <laughs> you know, ooh, I'm just going to say New York and leave it at that, right? Because here's why. Well, here's why. Because in New York, I can find I can find a dozen folks from back home serving up the same food and a dope slice of pizza in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Will your mom be upset that you just said that? No, mom lives in New York too. She knows I'm right. Plus mom's food is in New York. <laughs> so there it is. I'm doubling down. What's one of the more interesting parts of St. Thomas that no one knows about? No one knows about. I think we know it's a beautiful place. Yeah. We know it's a great vacation place. Yeah, Crown Mountain. I'm going to go with Crown Mountain. When you land on the island, you land on the west side of the island, Sierra Lee King Airport. If you were to turn left and look immediately up into the mountains, that is Crown Mountain. I think most people head right to the eastern part of, of the island, or maybe the, the center. They should spend more time hanging out on the western side of the island. There you go. Hang out more on the western side of the mount, of the island. That is what Gabe has recommended. Are you a world traveler? Do you travel much? I mean, not in the last year. I haven't. <laughs> Historically. <laughs> yeah, my passport's fairly well stamped. Um, before pandemic and shutdown, my last trip, I, what was it? I think I was just coming back from Dubai. It's been so darn long, the last international trip. But yeah, I love getting out there. In fact, it's one of the things I can't wait to do once it's all this lifts is get back out there. There's still a lot I haven't seen yet. What's a place you plan on visiting quite, quite soon? I haven't put any plans into place yet, but I would absolutely love to get to, to Rome. And although I've been to Germany a few times, I want to go a little further east, like start in Prague and just drive my way all the way west until I, until I hit like Hamburg and then get a plane home or something. There it is. This guy, you mean you are a world, world-class traveler. There you go. Going to Rome, been to Dubai from St. Thomas, like you are all over the place. It's fantastic. Trying to outrun the pandemic at this point. <laughs> I hear you, man. I can't wait to start traveling again. It's, it is without a doubt of all the people we talk to, the most desired thing that they want to like resume in their life. Yes. Very few people have said like, oh, I want to see more people. I oh. feel like people, it's like they want to travel. They want to be outside. They want someone to serve them a meal. They want to smell the fresh air of someplace new. Yeah. I want to be stuck in an airport for 12 hours while they tell me it's a mechanical error <laughs> and then miss my connection. But I want to get there. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how those stories of horror turn into stories of like, you know, they're, they're anecdotal to a great story. Yes. They become part of a great story. Great. That's right. I haven't forgotten that part of traveling, but I can't wait to get back to it. <laughs> well, Gabe, I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing your work at Spirian, what you guys are up to with data privacy and security. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. I appreciate you having me, man. Thank you. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.